This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, this is Chase Masterson, host of the hit Discovery podcast, Disco Nights. Star Trek Discovery may not be back till next year, but rest assured, Disco Nights will be back this fall to talk the new Star Trek Picard series, as well as everything we hope and expect from Season 3 of Discovery, plus some other special surprises. Join me and our special guests when we return with all new episodes this August. Until then, Disco Lives! Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, co-host of Inglorious Trexperts. And if you're a fan of Battlestar Galactica, and who isn't, check out my new oral history of Battlestar Galactica with Ed Gross, So Say We All. It spans the complete history of Battlestar Galactica from the 1978 series to Ronald Moore's brilliant reinvention and even Galactica 1980. Available from Tor Books wherever books are sold. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Hey, Darren, good to see you. Welcome. Good to see you, too. Always good to be doing another show, and I'll tell you, it's good to be doing another show with our returning champ, Mr. Doug Drexler, is back. <laughs> hey, Welcome. everybody. I'm wow, up. I'm excited to come. Uh, you know, and I, that theme, that was the first, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was the first Star Trek theme that you were able to get yep. a hold of and buy. From yeah. Anywhere. Dot, dot Records, yeah. Mr. Spock's Music from Outer yeah. Space. That's right. Leonard Nimoy <laughs> presents Mr. Spock's Music from Outer Space. And it went from being extremely goofy at the time to now it's hip and cool. Yeah, sure. yeah. But, you know, but because it was the only thing there was, you learn to live with it that, you know, that, and find the good things. That there. record, the, the, the second track on that called Alien, which is a spoken word thing that Nimoy does. When I was seven years old, I memorized that thing and I would walk around telling myself that whole thing. And that's how I learned to do the Nimoy voice. Really? <laughs> <laughs> what What else was on that album? I'm trying Spock to remember. Thoughts. So, Spock Thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which it was such a disappointment to start going into the, uh, uh, you know, the novelty stores and finding 10,000 posters of that turned up after a while. Remember? Yeah. <laughs> Go quietly amidst the noise and haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. That, now, that, w- that, wasn't, that wasn't on Mr. Spock's Music from it, Outer Space. Oh, it wasn't? That was on... Uh, the, either the touch of Leonard Nimoy, oh, or and I bought them all. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> they're they're all they're all amazing. The first time I ever saw Leonard Nimoy in person, when Mister Spock's music from Outer Space came out, a department store chain in New York called EJ Corvettes. Mm-hmm. Oh, Corvettes, yeah, yeah. Sure. He was doing signings. Wow. And so yeah. I had my Mister Spock's album for him to sign, and his hair was cut as right. Spock. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. You know. Uh, Twice I well, got to do what that. Freak, wow. What freaked me out about that was that the front cover of the album had the early photo of Spock from the pilot uh, holding the three-foot Enterprise model. And that just freaked me out because oh, they'd never too. seen the model before. Oh, my God. It was, one of the, it was the best picture of the model there was. Yeah. Uh, just yeah. Uh, amazing. And I, I must have traced that drawing 
like 50 times. I, I'm going to cheat because I'm going to look at some of the track listings. On <laughs> it. Uh, I, I, I'm going to admit right now that I'm cheating, that I don't have this committed to memory. Am I the you before? The you now, you people, were when your world was new? Or am I the God. you that you will be tomorrow? Oh, my God. Holy cow. That's fantastic. It's, in, it's taking up more of my brain yeah. than I'm comfortably uh, able to say. Well, because what people don't realize is there were some reissues from Rhino that have stuff that's not you know, like uh, that wasn't in the original, right? Like oh. Ballad of Bilbo right. Baggins was not on that album. It was album. not on that album. It's that on the later. collection yeah. now, but um, yeah. But here Wait. they have the in the middle of the earth, from the, the land of the Shire, of the brave little hobbit who we all admire. Fuzzy woolly toes. He lived in his hobbit hole, and everybody knows him. Bilbo, Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins. He's only three feet tall. My God, what was he on at the time? Wow. Well, you know, he performed that on television a yeah. number of times. There was a show called Hullabaloo. I think right? it's still on YouTube where you could see him cavorting. And... It's unbelievable. It unbelievable. Is. It really and you is. know what? It It's a sign of the times because in the 60s, celebrities kind of did sort of goofy stuff like this on, on variety shows yeah. all the time. Yeah. And it was just part of the package. You know, you were, you did a little singing, a little dancing, a little uh, variety. Because that's... A little song, a little dance, a, a little, little seltzer down, down your pants. pants. <laughs> yeah. Okay, tell me what, the, what these uh, bring back, because I have it in front of me. Leonard Nimoy presents Mr. Spock's music from outer space. Right. It's not on iTunes. Fortunately, I have it in my library. Go right. figure. <laughs> I, uh, it's a digitized. So uh, in addition First to the theme, from, theme Star from Star Trek, Trek. Right, then Alien. Alien, that's the, that's the soliloquy that I learned. Yeah. Where is love? Yeah. Where, that... where is love? Does it fall from skies above? Oh, my God. The song from but Oliver. Wait, but wait, it gets better. It gets better. Oh, right. Music, Music to, to watch, watch Space, Space Girls oh, by. <laughs> Which is a great instrumental. Uh Oh, my goodness. That should be our opening music. Uh, Beyond Antares, of course. Right. Oh, yeah, see, that was great because it wasn't that far off. Right. It wasn't goofy. Yeah. It, it, it was played totally straight. Now, it's just an instrumental piece. Yes. But I remember loving... Really lo- that a lot. Now I don't think you love this next one. Uh oh. Twinkle, twinkle, little <laughs> earth. <laughs> you know I wonder what, what you're worth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know it's just one of these little um, crazy little bits that is humorous, and he plays Spock in it, and it is Spock uh, you know ruminating on goofy things that Earth people do. Uh, and it's just uh, you know yeah, another spoken word. Fun he's in character. Yeah, I, I love that yeah. he's in character. Uh, uh, Mission Impossible, right? Um, Lost I, in the stars, yeah. right? Where no man has gone before, which is a nice little um, uh, musical sort of rendition of just sort of the fanfare theme, which is uh, which is interesting, and I'd never heard it anywhere before. But uh, you know, at least that's another track that. Alexander Courage got some money from Andrew Nunbury. Um, you are not alone, right? And now the coup de grace, right? The final track. Are you ready? Do you remember? I do. Here it comes. I don't. A, a visit, visit to, to a, a sad, sad planet. planet. Wow, hey, that was a grim one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We very, called, it was we very sad. It very, very Earth. sad. Oh yeah. And of course, it because Leonard all we did could this see album. were ruins. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and of course, you know, because uh, Leonard uh, did this and it was successful and got a lot of attention, Bill had to do his. Yeah. There's some great stuff on his. I mean, Transform Man, right? Transform, Transform Man, Man yeah. is. Transform Man. 
I, I remember I was able to have dinner with Bill Shatner at his Shatner weekend for his fan club back in the mid-90s. And I performed a piece for him, uh, Age of Aquarius, as Shatner would have done it with my, with my roommate at the time, uh, Dylan. Um, and we performed as what we called ourselves the counterfeit bills. And, <laughs> and we, we performed Age of Aquarius for him as Shatner would have done it. And he was in hysteric laughter. He was beet red and enjoying every minute of it. And at dinner, he said, you know, when I was putting together that album, it was, I mean, now they're taking it out of context, you know, all the various pieces. And it, it really it really doesn't work out of context because it's a journey that you go from the beginning to the end. And it's a story that you have to follow through music. And, you know. Who knows if this is BS, but it sure sounded good. And, it, and listening to the album from beginning to end, it does make sense because there's various stages that mankind goes through as he depicts in song. And, you know, I think there was a lot more that he of thought that he put into it. Whether or not that meaning comes through in the album is, you know, anybody's guess as to who the listener is. But... Um, it's it's still amazing, and you know we're we're talking about him, you know, yeah, fifty years later. Well, and I'll tell you, you know, those were novelty albums, but a, a genuinely, genuinely, like good album. You know, many years later, you know, Shatner did has been, it's which is amazing. a really great yeah. album. Like, there's no caveats. Like, oh, Bill, you know, it's no, Bill. Yeah. It's a great album, yeah. and it's very. Um, Have you picked up his Christmas album? I haven't. yet. I picked it up. How is it? I, I think it's a must-have if you're. It's exactly really, what you want. It's exactly what you want. I mean, I couldn't even. I mean, William Shatner and Ian Anderson. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm holding out for the Hanukkah album, but yeah, no, I, I, I actually, I, I, I got to get that. It's, it's I called Eight it Days yet. of Bill. <laughs> it's fine with me. I'll, 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 I'll take it. Um, but you know, it's funny because today's episode is not, as you may think, about Star Trek novelty albums. It may sound that way from the first. Eight minutes and forty nine <laughs> seconds of the show, but yeah. it's completely related. We spun actually. <laughs> That's the joy it. of the show yeah. is 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 constantly spinning out. But we are actually here because we want to talk about specifically with with Doug about the early days and and of uh, Star Trek magazines and fanzines and um, the reason specifically is uh, Doug was there at the very beginning, uh, one of the earliest Star Trek. Um, I guess you could call it a magazine. Uh, I think it had to have been the first Star Trek magazine that I I, I can't. I can't think of another. As a matter of fact, just magazines on science fiction or fan, the only thing I could aside, Cine Fantastique right. was out then. Well, uh, but they weren't the covering first, Star Trek yet. The first, no, they really. They they, I mean, they didn't cover Star Trek uh, until May, I think the 20th anniversary was the first thing that Cine Fantastique did right. with Star Trek. And then, of course, you know, I ran it into the ground for many years right. uh, after that. <laughs> um, yeah, but but Doug, your your poster magazine. Was the first regularly widely published as far as I know, Star yeah. Trek publication. Yeah, ever. and and we predated Starlog as well. Yeah, well, by a good three. Oh years. yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Now, but let me ask you because it was one other magazine I remember of the era, and I don't know if you remember it. I I can't I can't lecture you about the history of it. I know very little <laughs> bit about it. It was called um, the official Star Trek convention magazine. And it was a magazine about Star Trek conventions, huh. and um, it was that. it was professionally produced. 
uh, it had a color cover. It was newsprint inside. Um, and each issue, even though it was called the convention magazine, right. it would run pictures about conventions and stuff, but then it would have articles and interviews and things like that. I know very little about it. I don't know who published it. And I mean, I wonder if they were connected to the Star Trek fan clubs it, magazine. It, it, oh, no, it, maybe that was it. Oh, it was, oh I think that's yeah. it. Start, we were yeah, just yeah. talking about this earlier okay. because this was the, the – it, it was called – the Guide to Fan Clubs of Star Trek, and it was a that monthly or bi-monthly uh, periodical and color, you know, very nicely printed. Um, uh, newsprint inside sometimes, mm-hmm. some color pictures, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it had a full color cover, yeah. and it was very well done, and that's the first time it I was. heard this guy's name. Ah. They did an article on the Federation Trading Post and came in, took lots of pictures, and we had <laughs> our remember. museum. I think that may have been the first. Yeah. I don't know if it was the commercials or the article, which was the first time I heard of the Federation <laughs> Trading I'd Post. Because I'd been to the Federation Trading Post a couple times before I got this magazine. I might have got the magazine at the Trading yeah, Post. might have. But... I remember seeing the story about them opening up their museum, and I never got back to go to the museum, mm. and I missed that. But I remember seeing the, you know, uh, Wayne Barlow and Doug Drexler standing next to the Baylock puppet <laughs> that they built, and the yeah. and the pants. I, I, I remember that picture yeah. like it was yesterday. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, uh, the guy who edited the magazine uh, shortly after that, he says, "I'm." I'm interviewing William Shatner for the magazine. And He's, you took those photos. I took those backstage with Bill. They oh, are. I, I we're talking about the same magazine. Yeah, but I re- it's completely exactly. remember I look that at those article. pictures today. Yeah. Yeah. And I say, wow, these are really some terrific. Now the. Th- the thing was, I mean, and he's so sharp. And, of course, he, he was wonderful. He, he really was wonderful. And we were backstage at the Ed Sullivan Theater, which is now where The Late Show yeah, is. Yeah. With the, um, and it was a game show. I don't remember what 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 game show it was. Tattletales. Was it Tattletales? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, I, was, I went with him to take the pictures. Mm-hmm. And I just know all his moves and every time he was about to hit something very Shatner right. I clicked it right. and he knew it Right. he got to a point where he realized I was hitting and he played to my camera <laughs> the, the one I still remember is Bill leaning back in his chair going oh yeah like I mean that. you know you can't see you, you can't see but it's photos. very Shatner it was like a series yeah. of fo- I, I totally remember yeah. that yeah they're really yeah. I'm, I look back at those today official go, Star Trek wow. fan clubs yes right right yeah. okay yeah they did a nice spread of pictures on all the stuff we had. Back I really there. liked that magazine. It was hard to find. I didn't have every issue, but I whenever I saw it, I, I think that on was that specific one we were talking about, it, there was a beautiful full color painting of yes. of Spock with yep. the Lerpa. Yep, that's right, and it it was gorgeous. Yeah, it was nicely done. Nicely, and, you done. know, people are saying, well, "How would these guys remember this magazine from 19? <laughs> and you it's know, the fact that is, was our internet. That there was, was, that was the only no way internet. it was right. There was no internet. The the episodes were not readily were not available at all, other than on on oh, yeah. you know on TV. Uh, you know, so w- w- once every night. So for us, it, it was a vast desert. Right. And whenever you could find a little water, you know, you drank it up. And, yeah. you know, whether it would be the magazines or as we talked about the last episode with the Federation Trading Post. So it was so exciting. And um, there weren't really these niche magazines. And, and, and printing was an expensive proposition. Yeah. You know, you had to have a lot of money or... Um, uh, you know, particularly in color at the time, right. uh, which you you would learn later on. Now, the the magazine that we all you know we were talking about alluding to uh, that Doug had been involved with was called the Official Star Trek Poster Book, <laughs> and I think most of us of that era can remember having those posters on the Absolutely. wall um, because it was a magazine that was a traditional eight and a half by eleven format, but it would open up 
into a giant poster that right. you could then hang on All your the window. stories and, and uh, features were on one side, and on the other side was a big poster of a, a beautiful image. Now, this well, is pre Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, um, we had a couple of posters that really stand out in my mind. I mean, we had all were collecting slides from Lincoln Enterprises. But Alan Asherman, who was one of the guys who was in, with us on the magazine, he had a, an incredible collection of transparencies and stuff. And we have this one shot of Nimoy as Spock at his station. Mm-hmm. And it came from a transparency like, you know, five by seven. Right. Transpa- it was huge. It was a giant, it wasn't five by seven, but right. it, it was a large format transparency. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that picture today, I mean, you could see the, the you know, the, the silver thread in the right. pants, the right. glitter in the pants, and you could read the labels on the, uh, the buttons. Yeah. Uh, it, it, well, that's the only way you could print an image that large and have it not muddy up and be blurry. I mean, if you're working off those transparencies, because everything was done, you know, uh, basically a plate would be made of the types, and then that plate would go on to, to the press. I mean, it was right. a whole different process of printing than it is, you know, now where literally you're just delivering stuff digitally to the printer and they're able to to, to print it. I mean, it was, you know... It was the, really complicated, really especially complicated. for color, because you'd have to have uh, offset transparencies made, mm-hmm. and they had to, you know, make the little dot pattern to have it print correctly, and it's insane. You kids have no freaking <laughs> idea. It was such a complicated What's thing. Print? That's why a lot of these <laughs> magazines were mostly black and white, and they would have one signature that was color, right. because every time a color, you'd have to send the color photos out to be uh, broken up into yeah. dot dot patterns and each cut layer of color, yeah. and it was a whole complicated and expensive, expensive. process. Because it was all hand done. Mm-hmm. All hand done. And but those magazines were 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 great. I mean, I remember. I think it was uh, the day of the Dove image I had up in my room, which oh, was yeah. uh, Kang and Kirk uh, laughing. Right. Uh, my favorite article was the Smithsonian report. Oh yeah, where oh, yeah, we went yeah. down to the Air and Space Museum, and they let us in before the museum was even open. Gave us a ladder so we could. Uh, I don't. I think that most people had never seen the Enterprise like that, unless they went to the museum, and not that many people had. It took a really amazing spread of shots for that and um uh and i still have people writing me about that article that's to so this wild. day that's wild yeah. well that uh, that article had that one picture of the nacelle cap taken off with the, yes, with with the, the broken, broken mirrors mirror inside. pieces yeah and and the and the the nails sticking yeah. out that they hung the christmas lights on. that was probably the very first time that picture had ever been circulated exactly. ever anywhere because no one knew what the heck it was yeah well, and it, it just was like blew your mind Grail. when you saw yeah. it because it was, it was so resourceful and unexpected. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, it looks, it, it it actually was such a simple thing. It's astounding but, in its simplicity. Yes. And its effectiveness. It, it is. Well, it really you know, is. I mean, I look at an image like uh, you know, you had the Tholian web in one, which was another mm-hmm. one I think I had. Uh, on my wall, and uh, and and the thing that was so great about that was I was so used to watching it in black and white on a small TV to have this giant image in of color, the, right. in color of the Tholian web. It was really it was super cool. So and you watched a lot of the episodes in black and yeah, white. Yeah, because I had a black and white TV in my room, and then the color TV in the living room. Right, and I didn't always have access to the color TV. Because, you know, it was in the family room, right. you know, and if there was a football game or on a hockey game or a baseball game, I wouldn't get near it because my father and my brother right. were watching. So, you know, I would often watch on the black and white TV in my... And then at one point, the color TV died, and we didn't have a new 
color TV for a while, and uh, so they took your black and white away. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's yeah, that, that's interesting. We were talking about this a little earlier, and I think I mentioned this on the podcast before. But we didn't have a, a color TV until I was like nine or ten. Hmm. So I had been watching Star Trek completely in black and white until you know that miraculous day where we brought it in, and there there it was, all the red and and. I, I watched uh, the entire first season in black and white. Yeah. And then um, a friend of mine who lived a couple blocks away, they had a color television. He invited me over to, mm-hmm. it was the premiere, second season premiere, I think. Yeah. It was a mock time, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And so I went to, for your first show in color to be a mock time. Amazing. Red skies. Yeah. I mean, I was intoxicated by it. And I did, wasn't watching it at home anymore. I went to right. his house every week. <laughs> and that's what made my parents get a color TV <laughs> to try to get me to stay home. <laughs> Well, you know, the one thing we didn't talk about when it comes to this poster book, man, is the origins of it, because that's a great story, how how it all came to be. Well, that, you know, it's the Federation Trading Post. I mean, um, at the time that we did the Trading Post, which was like 75 or 76 or something like that, and Darren and I were just discussing this, there was nothing. that You know, there were the model kits, there was a making of Star Trek, and I think the blueprints were out. But aside from that, there was almost nothing to be had outside of Lincoln Enterprises. So we did this store where we printed our own posters and we had our own uniforms made and and we put together slide collections out of, you know, our own collections. And uh, there was nothing like it. So whenever anybody, and of course New York was like the publishing capital of the world, you had Mad Magazine there. Whenever they did a satire, they came to us for their pictures. Saturday Night Live, when they did... um, uh, the Belushi, Ackroyd, Star Trek thing. They came and they got their uniforms from us, you know. So <laughs> we were talking about the Star Trek comic book, right. the Gold Key guys. Right. They came strutting in one day because they were only across the street from us. Right. And they were going to, they were coming in to be big shots. And I think that just about a half an hour before they came in, we were using them as an example of how wrong it can go. <laughs> And they came in and they said, we do the goal, puffing your chest out. We do the goal. And we burst out laughing. I couldn't help it. And they're like, what are you laughing at? And uh, we, as gently as we could, told them all the things wrong with them. <laughs> yeah, let, let, let's just for our audience, because there, I, I assume there are a lot of people out there who who are younger, may not know what the Gold Key right. comics are. Uh, gold Key was... Um, comic book company that licensed the rights to Star Trek was the first uh, other than the um, the newspaper strips right They were, no there were no newspapers the, there, there hadn't been it was the uh, first yeah. time there was a Star Trek comic and um, but they had an artist who was working out of Italy I think and Gold Key was a small company they they had done you know like little, little maybe they did maybe they did Casper cartoons or something like that some you know you know like kitty cartoon books and this was kind of the first sort of adult thing that they did but they didn't really treat it like an adult thing they treated it like a, a kid's book well but the and the artist had no guide for putting it together right because he'd never seen <laughs> the show so you know there's like exhaust coming out of the warp you know yeah, sure. yeah. Missiles. there's of course james bomber did that that's right first poster you so. know they have these packs these backpacks oh, that yeah. they carry around their supplies yeah. well in. i mean if you're a real uh, fan you know you, just the whole idea that they're tucking their pants into their boots is enough to make you crazy. <laughs> I mean, there's so much about it that is um, that is completely wrong. It's kind of like watching Discovery today. Uh, oh, can I say that? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, <laughs> and listen to our other podcast. Uh, but the, the, the thing that's so interesting is 
I didn't have the actual comics. What I had were those, uh, they did these compendiums called the, the Star Trek Companion or Star Trek... Um, whatever they were, they would put five or six of the gold key right. comics into one trade paperback. Okay, and that's where right. I discovered yes. it. And I have to say that as as awful and as misguided as that, it was Gonzo. Like it was, they did some really crazy stuff. Yeah, they did. And some of it was so crazy it was actually good. Yeah, but well, especially in the looking back. Yeah, you know, it, it's. It, uh, I think at the time it, uh, when I was reading it, I was so offended. But when I look at them today, they're actually kind of charming in their weirdness. You know. Well, you told me yes. you you helped them edit a couple of them, I, and yeah. you, you well, actually wrote a two pager. Yeah. Well, the thing is that they came in and we laughed at them, and they were like <laughs> mortified and. Uh, and their attitude, they didn't actually say it this way, but it was like, well, if you think you're so smart, why don't you edit a few of them? You know, I mean, it's that's be, living in New York. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, totally. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I edited two or three of them where I basically went through the scripts and made sure that people, you know, that the way a starship was run, what kind of orders Kirk would give, how he would say it. I mean, that's important to a, a Star Trek fan. And, and, and there was a specific way everything was done, made sure all that was in line and you know, rewrote some of the dialogue and things like that. And 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 uh, I actually wrote a two-page uh, one myself. I think it was called From Sputnik to Warp Drive. And I even laid it out for the guy. I even drew up, you know. <laughs> and uh, I, I was telling Darren that at the time, the artist was a guy named uh, Al McWilliams. And we were laughing because we're thinking of Al Williamson, yeah. right, who's an incredible artist. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And we loved him from the EC stuff. And uh, But anyway, I, I had a meeting where I went in and talked to him. And I was especially, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm like 24 years old. So I'm <laughs> especially crazed, you know, <laughs> when it comes to this stuff and uh, pointing out everything that, and, and I'm sure that he thought I was out of my freaking mind. I mean, but I, I provided them with lots of reference and um, not that I don't, I couldn't tell if they were using it or not. <laughs> I mean, I, if I recall, they get better. And in fact, if for some people who are curious, IDW did some beautiful um, hardcover compilations recently mm. where they take all the gold key comics and also the uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture newspaper strips sure. and have done a lovely job I, under Rich Hanley, uh, who was the editor, I believe, on it, putting them all together in these beautiful trade paperback collections. And I highly recommend it because the gold key comics are... Um, they're worth revisiting. I mean, let's just say that. Oh, I if only... totally agree. Yeah, it's it's. But well, that's it also so gives funny. You an inside look at how people at that time who weren't really into it perceived right. Star Trek. Exactly. You yeah, know? and it feel felt like no one was actually, you know, looking at the licensed product. Nobody cared right. because you had, uh, you know, Mission Horatius that that little hardcover, yeah. which was yeah. completely inaccurate. Wait the a way... second. Yeah. Wasn't wasn't the book that came with it? Uh, didn't Neil Adams illustrate it? No, those are the Power Records. Right. Oh, yeah, okay. Power Records. It was Neil Adams and also Russ Heaths from, you know, who's working for no, Condé. Mission to Horatius was like this green-covered hard, young adult book. hard book yeah. Yeah, that uh, I had when I was in, what, fourth grade. And it was it was not good, but it was Star Trek. <laughs> it was and, the closest thing yeah. we had. Well, it was like when you look at the, you know, the, the toy phasers. Sure. And the home, you know, <laughs> The Mego dolls and things. I, 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 to, to people who are really geeky fans, I mean, I didn't like any of that stuff. I mm. thought it was silly as can be. But because there was nothing 
they did really well because it was the closest thing. You, right. you remember AMT did their absolutely uh, their exploration the kids, kit yeah. where everything was like it was kid size. Ki- yeah, it was, <laughs> I was a kid. Yeah, I so mean, was we perfect. were a little younger than you, so we loved all that stuff. You know, the Mego toys and the the the, the, the AMT model kits and everything. But you know, compared to the uh, uh, compared to the Remco Phaser, the 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 um, AMT oh, yeah. was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Just because that Remco so phaser small. was huge and it was terrible. <laughs> and I think I think they were, you would, either you or Wayne were talking about that specifically in that article in the fan club magazine <laughs> and saying, why do they do these things when they can spend just the same amount of money for a mold that looks exactly like the real phaser, and they can get it right? Why do they do these awful ones? Because that's just how it worked. That's all they could do at the time. You know, and I was going to say it was so interesting, and I don't have the memos here, but maybe we can put them the week this episode airs on, on the Internet, on, on the, our Facebook page or on Twitter. But there's some great memos that went back between Gene and uh, uh, I think Dorothy and, and maybe it was even Gene, where they were all seeing the um, the books, um, the the... the um, um, like some license, pro- I'm very upset about. It may have even been John Meredith Lucas. I think that's who it was. And he's saying we have to like fix some of this stuff. This stuff is not accurate. It reflects badly on the show. Mm-hmm. And it was like the beginning of you know them sort the of vetting, vetting Star right. Trek uh, product. And it was very early on, and they were aware of it, and they were concerned about the fact that this stuff was you know cuckoo for cocoa puffs. <laughs> Um, as they said, you know, at one point, you know, Uhura is singing Negro spirituals and the rec room and mission to right, Horatius. And right. they said, we, we have to deal with this. This is not, there's not, it's not, none of this stuff is accurate and it's right. not portraying our characters in a good light. And um, so it, it, they were definitely aware of it. I wish I had the memos here, but um, uh, really interesting sort of back and forth about that whole thing and how they, because Licensing Corporation of America was responsible and Roddenberry was really excited about everything they promised sure. in terms of getting the brand out there because even then he knew you know people will say Lucas knew but you know Roddenberry knew in the 60s right. the more licensed product that they could do um, the the more the likelihood that the show would flourish it and was... again before 1973 when the animated series came out there was the AMT kits and oh nothing else <laughs> <laughs> there was absolutely nothing when the animated show came out then you got the blueprints then you got the action figures then you got uh, you know uh, more of the published uh uh, books and things, but it was the animated series that really sort of gave it the push. I guess because it was, it was the Saturday morning cartoon. It. I mean, link. Didn't it win an Emmy? It absolutely it did. Did, it did you have Emmy. any images from the animated series in the official poster magazine, or was it all original show? No, we didn't. There was nothing from. Yeah. I don't even know. Was there an animated series yet? Seventy three and seventy four is when it was out. Maybe they so. did. <clears throat> but again, this was way before. You know, we had connection to any of this. But what was happening? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Doug. Well, I was just when when Darren says there were the model kits and nothing. <laughs> um, I, we were earlier. We were talking about how Anthony Fredrickson and I, and Anthony ended up working on the show as well. Um, we went to the first Star Trek convention in New York, in in Manhattan, in New York City, uh, and Anthony had based on the pictures in the making of Star Trek, actually made a hand phaser out of balsa wood sanded it down, painted it shiny black and hand drew the grid on the, you know, the actuator pad. And, and when we were waiting in line to go into the con, 
he took that thing out and almost caused a riot. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I, I mean, a mob formed around to just get a glimpse of this thing. And it wasn't, it was, you know, it was pretty crude. Right. But it just goes to show you that there the was. The hunger for this stuff yeah. was always there. Well, you talk about that first convention. Was that the Statler Hilton or the Commodore Hotel? It was across from Penn Station. Yeah, Statler Hilton. Statler Hilton, yeah. yeah. And they didn't expect, it. they got way more people than they expected. And right. I think Nimoy even showed up uh out of the blue in in the evening. I sat, I you know, Gene Roddenberry, it was the first time I'd ever seen the blooper reel in the cage. Yeah. And it was in a, you know, a, not a gigantic room. And Gene was running a projector, yeah. you know, <laughs> and, 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 and talking about the blooper reel. And it was, it, it, it's, wow. Well, what and those first conventions, you know, it's funny because this is sort of, you know, what we're talking about in the show. There was a, a lack of, of merchandise. So, the, what the fans did was they created, they filled the void. Yeah. So you had the birth of the we Star Trek. We forbade them weapons. They began to fashion their own. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 they um, filled the void um, by publishing their own magazines. And those were the first Star Trek fanzines. Now, yeah. there had been fanzines for other things in the past, but it was mostly um, stuff that was examining. Newsletters. Newsletters and, like and, and, and reviewing um, uh, science fiction novels. Sure. But there would never been anything quite like the Star Trek fanzines. Well... At the convention, there would be a fanzine room yeah. where there would be like dozens of fanzines. And all. And what was interesting is that um, it was predominantly run by women, yes, right. which is very unusual for then. And I remember a few, like 10 years after that, there was an article in the New York Times talking about the influx of women in writing science fiction and fantasy. And they chalked it up to Star Trek fanzines mm. yeah. because they used to write their own fiction. And I drew... I used to illustrate for them. Uh, I, I I did covers and, and, and cartoons and illustrations for a Kirk number. Kirk slash fiction. Oh, none of that. But... <laughs> <laughs> At least none you want to was admit. T negative. T negative uh, was one of the first one. magazines. Grub. And Grub. Then there was obviously uh, Trek magazine, uh, which right. was more of a nonfiction you know thing that then became the book series. But there was also yeah T negative Spocknalia. Um, uh, uh, God, what was Spocknalia? It was a lot of everything was very Spock centric. It's so right. interesting, and I think you mentioned a lot of it uh, was done by women, and yeah. women gravitated towards Spock. Yes, uh, the Spock logical, scent, but hiding this you know sensitivity you know that he couldn't admit to. Right. Whereas you know it's funny because all well, the Kirk males was too easy. Spock was a challenge. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> to break down that cold Vulcan heart. But uh... <laughs> yeah. the thing about the Federation trading post is that we had a wall of fanzines on consignment from all over the country. People used to send us boxes with their fanzines and you could go in there and see like, you know, 25 different, I mean, when I say a wall, that, I mean, we'd have maybe 25 or 30 titles, which is really a lot. And and as we were saying earlier again, that was the internet of the day. This mm -hmm. is how fans communicated with each other. How else, you know? But what's so interesting, you know, people talk about how, um, what was it uh, that... Um, the Twilight fan fiction became uh, that right became uh, that uh, Fifty Shades of Fifty Grey. Shades of Grey. You know, if you look back at the, in the day, a lot of that fan fiction ended up becoming professionally published because you had Myrna Culbreth and uh, Jack who had the, those stories that ended up becoming a Bantam official right New start, Voyages and, yeah. and, and well, also their Bantam books. There were right. a couple of like Spock's Angel, I think, and there were a couple of those stories that Bantam published that were written by people who started as fanzine writers. Right. You know, and, I I, I rem there was one story. I think it was in a fanzine originally. It was 
it was like a visit to us. It was the one where they beam down to the planet and they and they beam onto the sound onto stage. The set. Do you right. remember that? Well, it was the, obviously it was Shatner, Nimoy, and D. Kelly find themselves in the real 23rd century on the Enterprise. Was that like what the it fake was? It, uh, right. it was kind of like this really cool Galaxy Quest meets Mirror Mirror, you know. And that was in New Voyages. It was what visit to a. I don't remember the title. Yeah, but I, I always remember. thought that would be a great fan film. For all yeah. everybody who does these fan films, that that would be a fantastic, you know, that's have the real actors. That's one with me after all these years. I, that's the, I remember too. And I would go back and reread that. And I never re, reread much. Like I, I was a voracious reader, but I always like to read something new rather than go back and read mm-hmm. something I'd read. But I would always go back and reread that story. And I, I can tell you, I mean, the Mind Sifter became right. canon, the Klingon right. Mind Sifter, you know, which was a big story, novella in that book. And then, of course, that wonderful story about the actors having to pass themselves off as the real characters. <laughs> and it's delightful. It's delightful. Yeah, it really was. And gorgeous really was. artwork on that as well for that book cover. Um, yeah. All those Bantam covers were beautiful. We've talked about this before, but the the artwork was so gorgeous on those early Star Trek. Well, it's interesting that the lack of of official material made the fans step up, yes. and and they made their yeah. creativity become part of fandom, and that's where all the you know fanzines and all the you know uh, fan produced uh, props and and fan films started. Because there was nothing official. And because of that, that's why there was more Star Trek after. They wouldn't correct. have been mm-hmm. Next Generation or mm-hmm. any, anything else if it hadn't been for the way the fans... The fans were really a powerful voice, and the studios even feared the fans at right. you know back then. Oh, yeah, and I think that's why the fans feel such as, uh, so proprietary about all this, because... They kept it going, and then they were immersing themselves writing these stories and everything else. And it seems like the fan films were an outgrowth of what fanzines did with Absolutely. the technology. Absolutely. Basically, they're you know video fan you know video fiction. You yeah. know, yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's really remarkable. I mean, when you look at the creativity that has gone on, and and how many times on the shows have. Um, the, the people who make the shows come to, to guys like you who are doing stuff as a hobby to license or borrow or use or with James Cauley yeah. where they ask for you know, stuff that he had built to, yeah. to use on the show. I mean, it's remarkable. Yeah, they it, we supplied, we were, well, and, that, and that's how the poster book happened. Everybody came to us because we were high, prof, you know, high profile and just like the uh, Gold Key Comics, one day this guy came in uh, from Fiona Press, which was like two blocks away. And I think most of the stuff that they did were like nudie magazines. And I think that they had done a couple of poster books for something, uh, I don't know, but it was nothing like Star Trek. And they did okay. Uh, And somehow they got the license to do a poster book for Star Trek, which at the time I'm figuring that getting a license wasn't that difficult. You know, it was like this dead TV show that no one thought anything of. And he came in. And was talk saying that they were going to do a poster book, and uh, they needed photos and they needed information and they wanted you know background and they literally knew nothing. Right. And uh, Ron Barlow, because I ran a store with Ron, uh, um, and he had worked on uh, magazines like I don't know if you remember the Monster Times. He worked oh, yeah, on the sure. Monster yeah, Times, yeah, which and, was a newspaper tabloid. Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, he said, "Well, why don't you just let us do your magazine?" And they said. They thought for like two seconds and went, yeah, okay. And they, they literally just gave us the magazine. Right, right. And we uh, we wrote all the articles. All the images came out of our slide well, collections. I read it for the articles. 
<laughs> there were some good articles. Yeah, I mean, there, there really were. were. There, there and, were. And uh, Alan wrote some terrific ones. I mean, Alan was one of those unsung heroes of early Star oh, Trek. Oh, God, yeah. You know, I mean, His he... His book's still terrific, the yeah. compendium that he yeah. wrote. Yeah, yeah he, um, he collected things and uh, kept them safe and uh, had props and... Uh, he'd come into the Federation trading post a lot, and uh, um, yeah, I I I miss him. He's and he's passed on. Alan uh, Ashman passed away. I Alan had no Ashman idea. Was passed that away. Uh, it was within the last few years, mm. and I remember I was in uh, about four years ago, four or five years ago. I was in Manhattan. Dorothy and I went uh, to New York City, and Luna came with us. Jimmy and Luna. And uh, oh, it was because they were doing a revival of South Pacific, and Luna was mm-hmm. one of the kids in South Pacific. Yeah. So we went and got treated like celebrities, you know, because it was Barbara Luna. But um, uh, some guy was there, and he said, "Say, Doug Drexler." And I'm like, "Huh?" And he, uh, it turns out, it was a Star Trek fan. Uh, and he says, "I'm friends with Alan Asherman." I'm like, "Oh my God, Alan Asherman!" He says he works. He he was maintaining a library for. Uh, uh, DC Comics and Warner in Manhattan. I think all that's out here now. Yeah, they moved everything out here. Yeah. And I w- was like, "Can can we see him?" He says, "Yeah, I could take you over there right now." And, and, and no warning at all. And I had Barbara Luna with me, you know. <laughs> and it was the first time I had seen Alan. Um, in oh my god, I mean, it had to have been twenty five years, wow. uh, if not more. And uh, the funny thing was that Alan is going gaga over Luna and he mentioned something about Malachi throne <laughs> and Luna pulls out her phone and says, let me get Malachi on the phone right now. And now you've got Malachi throne there as well. Oh, that yeah. is so funny. It was really well, wonderful. You know, we stand on the shoulders of all these people. I mean, I've read, done a lot of writing about star Trek over the years, but you know, I look back and you know, as a kid reading B Joe's wonderful concordance and Alan's book and, uh, you know, those those legendary books. So, you know, it's like they, they were the pioneers, you know, in yeah. the Star Trek uh, journalism and, and, you know, deeply indebted to everything. I think Alan's last book on Star Trek was The Making of Star Trek II, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. Which was a terrific book. It's yeah. long out of print, but, um, you know, terrific. And then, I you know, I love Susan Sackett's uh, Making of Star Trek The Motion Picture, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, as well. Um so it's so interesting. But, you know, you mentioned Luna. And I have to ask you, you were telling us a story about how you went to see uh, Jason Alexander re- <laughs> recently uh, doing a play. And uh, can you share that that story? For, because it's, it's well, wonderful. you know, we have this wonderful old theater near where we live uh, in North Hollywood. It's around the corner from the TV Academy, actually, called the El Portal. I think Debbie Reynolds used to go to the movies there and ended up performing, mm. you know, there. And uh, well, they were doing a show. It was the Prisoner of Second Avenue, and it had Jason Alexander in it. And um, I saw that. Dorothy, I saw. This, I said, "Gee, we'd like to see that." And I uh, and uh, I'm talking to Lou, and I said, "You know, Jason Alexander is a, a nut for Star Trek. If you and Mike Forrest came along, I'm telling you that if he knew you would." And they're like, "No, he wouldn't. No, he wouldn't." So we saw the show, and afterwards, you know, the actors usually pass through the lobby. I grabbed Jason Alexander, and I said, "Say." Barbara Luna and Mike Forster. And he was like, what? <laughs> he totally like geeked out. I took him over and he, I have pictures of him talking to Mike Forrest and he is just goo-goo-eyed and gushing to Mike about how his acting in as Apollo at, at the end of uh, uh, that. Who, who wants Adonis, Adonis, yeah. uh, 
affected his entire everything and that he wanted to be an actor. And the you know, it's like it's the image is like Jason Alexander looking like a little kid and Mike Forrest looking like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> I mean, and, and Michael just still looks great. I mean, he's yeah. in great he shape. I mean, he's amazing. He really is. And uh, and then Luna, of course, played Marlena in Mirror Mirror. And... Oh, well, the thing was that Jason went right by Barbara Luna to Mike Forrest <laughs> and Luna's standing there with her hands on her hips going, what am I, chopped liver? <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. That, that is just Do you wild. still hear the fanfare when you talk to Mike Forrest? Boom, boom, Of course I do. <laughs> and he always comes at me like this. Hand in the face. You ended up becoming very, very good friends with Bob Justman, the, the, yeah. the late associate producer of, uh, of Star Trek. What did he make of all this? I mean, and and uh, you know, in, in in I mean, it was remarkable because you know he'd done great work before. I mean, he'd been on Outer Limits, he did Star Trek. After that, he did great work on other shows. And then came Bronson. You know, he worked you know steadily. And then Star Trek comes back. He's he's on Next Generation. And you know, he's a much older guy as they all were at that point, Gene and and Bob. But what did he, what did he make of all this? Because sometimes you know people don't acknowledge how important Bob was. And if you look at the memos oh, or you, you talk to Bob, you realize how. I think he was the heart. He, he the was heart the heart of, the of Star Trek, right? Yeah, I really feel that way. Uh, I have. He was such a kind, warm, wonderful guy with a uh, a sense of humor that wasn't as raucous as it was in the memos. Mm. He was still funny, but the, his memos, I mean, those alone, legendary. Are legendary. So great. Um, you know, I, 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 I think I don't know if I told you the story last time I was here about how I first met Bob. And that I was, uh, my partner and I, we were doing makeup and we had a lab in Brooklyn. And they were, the news had come out that they were doing TNG and they were just starting up. Uh, they were on the lot. There were no sets or anything yet. And I, it was driving me crazy because I so wanted to be a part of it. And um, my partner Caglione says, well, Doug, why don't you just give Bob a call? And I'm like, I can't give. And I'm like, well, wait, wait. Why can't I give Bob? I'm working in a business. <laughs> You're I'm, an you industry know, professional. Yeah, I'm industry prof- That's exactly what I said. So I, I got on the phone. I got the Paramount switchboard number, got the Paramount switchboard, and I said in the most adult voice <laughs> <laughs> I could muster, uh, yes, uh, this is Doug Drexler. Could you please uh, connect me to the Star Trek production office? And it was like one moment. And the next thing I knew, I had somebody in the production office. I said, I'm Doug Drexler, and I'd, I'd like to speak to Bob, Robert H. Justman, please. And they said, one moment. Next thing you know, I had Bob Justman on the phone, just like that. God, that's wild. You know, people forget, before voicemail, you could get anyone on the phone. Right. Because either the assistant would pick up, or if they weren't there, the person would pick up the phone. Because nobody wanted to, you never knew who it was who was calling. Right. So it's like you, you made sure to answer every call. And, uh, you know, voicemail changed all that and the yeah. answering machine and everything like that. But so, yeah, so, so you I had on the phone Bob on the phone and, you know, he's we hit it off and we, you know, I didn't want to bug him, but we wrote letters back and forth. And I still have my letters from Bob. And I remember um, uh, he invited me out and I went out and stayed with him all day long, going from meeting to meeting to meeting. That's the kind of guy he was. Uh, there were no sets or anything. I mean, I went to visual effects meetings where ILM was showing, you know, effects shots. And uh, that was when Bob, he, he took a cardboard box out of his desk, uh, uh, a small cardboard box, like, you know, three by five probably, and said, 
now you can't tell anybody about this. He says, you are a professional, right? And I said, well, yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> and he opens it up, and it was a little wooden Enterprise D that Greg Jean had made right. where the windows were drawn on in pencil. And I, was, and I remember Bob holding that up and saying, not a straight line on it. And I, you know, you learn that to a producer, that means money. Money, yeah. yeah. But uh, 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 so once they were finally sets, I wrote a, another letter to him saying, um, you'd make this kid's dream come true if he could come and, and, and see the sets. And he wrote back and he said, we want to make this kid's dream come true. <laughs> but then he says, unfortunately, and I'm like, oh, it says, unfortunately, I can't say when. Because it's entirely up to you. <laughs> and he, says, he says, you come out and we'll be waiting. You know, and here's somebody who I, as a kid, he felt like an uncle to me. You know, the making of Star Trek really created this family of people that you fell in love with sure. from reading their memos and stuff. So uh, that was the, you know, the, I walked the Enterprise D and uh, that's when I met Mike Westmore the mm -hmm. first time and would end up, you know, doing makeup there. But, uh, you know, there was a sadness about Bob. I mean, first, he's a very modest guy. And when you say, did you have any idea? He, you know, he'll tell you how you you want to do the best job that you can. And you go in every day hoping that you're doing the right thing. And you really don't have any idea, you know. And and they're very proud of it. And, but there was a certain sadness. I think that, uh, I mean, he was older when they did Next Generation. Yes. And I think that as you get older, to work those kind of hours... Uh, and and work it that hard. It takes a toll. It takes a toll. Uh, but on the other hand, though, I think galloping that... around the galaxy is a game <laughs> for the young. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, Rick Berman was the guy who was being groomed, uh, and I th and I think s Bob just felt like it was time to you know move on. I think it goes back even more though. I think you know he wanted the show third season, yeah. and ultimately was not given it, you know, because they felt he wasn't a creative producer. But reading his memos, you know, he was a non-writing creative producer, which is a role that exists, but generally is very segregated. There's writing producers and there's physical production producers, but, you know, generally they're not the showrunners. And he was, he wanted to run Star Trek and clearly showed his ability to run Star Trek. And he, um, he was passed over for Fred Freiberger. Oh, that, that hurt. And that hurt. But then, again, 10 years later, he wasn't invited to the party for Star Trek The Motion Picture. And he felt he was such a huge, and he was, a huge part of Star Trek that to not even be asked. Huh. And I don't think he was even invited to any of the screenings to even like Gee, give that's notes. Really, that's such yeah. a and shame. I, I, and he I wasn't part of Phase 2 <clears throat> at all. And he wasn't part yeah. of Phase 2, that's right. Well, you know, Hollywood is, uh, yeah, I mean... You know, and fickle. he was, Very he was Gene's right-hand man, and he made so much of that possible and he cared about that show so deeply I mean I will tell you I mean I know that when Ed Gross reached out to the family when we were doing 50 year mission about trying to talk to them about his legacy and because we really wanted Bob to be represent a big part of the book uh, I, you know I know it was a very brief call it's like we don't want to talk about Star Trek it killed him we were not in you know they were really like oh, it was very terse and like we have no interest in talking about really? you know uh, which is, is really sad because yeah I mean those last year and a half was extremely uh, stressful for when he was on Next Generation because, of course, it was very political. Yeah. And, um, you know, between with Hurley and everybody jockeying for power and right. um, and Bob was, you know, I think treated in, in a lot of ways very disrespectfully. Yeah. And um, it's a shame because uh, what he brought to Star Trek, I mean, Star Trek would not be Star Trek without Bob Justman. Oh, and to hear he what had... he did for you is remarkable. Oh, he, I, you yeah, know, 
the letter that said, we want to make this kid's dream come true. I had that on the wall in the Star Trek art department for a long time. <laughs> and Bob came in one day and I'm like, Bob, look, there's your letter on the wall. I think he thought... He was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> he, he thought, my God, what have I done? Yeah. Thank, God, thank God you had your Oscar and your Emmy. You know, the, the, well, you know, it's funny. Um, I hadn't seen him for years. I was on Deep Space Nine, but I would help on the other shows, uh, too. Um, it was uh, Relics, mm-hmm. where Jimmy Dillon comes back, sure. and they had to build a section of the bridge. So Mike and I did graphics for it. It was only a small bit, although I remember that... Uh, Mike said, you know, while you're at it, just do the entire bridge, even though we didn't, you know, and I did every panel and, of course, had a ball. But uh, Mike says, Bob Justman's going to come over to see the, you know, what we have there. And I hadn't seen him in years. And, um, you know, you enter the stage and usually you come in from this bright, blinding light. So it's like pitch black when you go in and your eyes start to adjust. And I see Bob Justman coming from between some of the sets. And he doesn't really quite see me, or at least I don't think he recognizes me, you know. And uh, I says hi to Mike and Denise, and we're walking over to where the bridge set is. And Bob turns around and says, you thought I forgot you, huh? (laughs) (laughs) And he says, I saw you win your Academy Award. He says, I can't tell you how proud I was when I saw you there. Um, but we took him over the bridge. He looked at us. Carpet's wrong color. <laughs> Still the producer. And, you know, and, um, but, but the point I'm getting to is we took him over to see the DS9 and we took him to the promenade and, you know, and it's an pr- impressive, you know, set. And, um, he said that he hadn't seen the show. And I remember being kind of surprised. Oh, you haven't seen the show. Huh. And he said, it's too painful. Mm. And um, that really went right to my heart. And I realized, you know, uh, but not completely yet. Years later, when the first J.J. Abrams movies were done and me and all my friends were not involved with Star Trek, Mm -hmm. I had that same feeling that Bob had. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, I knew what Bob was feeling. Like child was taken away. Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. I mean, I... uh, Mike Denise Denise calls me up and says Bob is asking for us he wants wants us to come over uh, and we all knew he was frail and not doing that well and we're like uh oh um, and we just had the feeling that maybe he knew something that you know we didn't know and uh, we went to his house and uh, rang the doorbell and the door very slowly opened and there was Bob looking frail and he looked at us like he didn't recognize us at all. And then all of a sudden, he just closed the door. <laughs> <laughs> and we burst out laughing. Then he was putting on for us. Yeah, oh, yeah. my goodness. Uh, and we laughed. Oh. And, of course, we had a wonderful time with him, you know. Um, uh, and it was like a week later that he passed. And he, I mean, there's some people that you grow up with and you end up, they end up being, I mean, you're really a lucky person if you had people that you admired and loved from afar uh, and, and you know, put on a pedestal. And then when you meet them, they are as wonderful as you hope they'll be. And they welcome you into, and they see you as family. I had the same uh, relationship with Matt Jeffries. 
Mm-hmm. We were very close with Matt, and we used to go out to his hangar, his airplane hangar, and chat with him. And I have some videos of it. Uh, and y- y- it- it's just a feeling that's it's really hard to describe. I even get a little choked up right now thinking about it. Um, I, re- I had one moment I was really – when we were leaving Bob's that night, his uh, there's uh, uh, the street uh, outside his house. There was a – it was kind of an incline, and he gave me a hug, and we got thrown off balance. And I thought we were going over. I actually had to <laughs> grab him, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, can you imagine if I had, you know – but, uh, yeah, that was like the last time we saw Bob. You know, Bob um, – he took me through his files and showed me little steno pads with ideas for scripts, you know, on on the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, he came up with a lot. Came up with a lot. A lot of stuff for the show. He wasn't and the he kind knew of, what was bad and he knew what was yeah. good. Yep. And, I mean, he gave Star Trek its sound, really. I mean, he loved being involved with the music mm-hmm. and right. bringing in the composers. I mean, that was almost, uh, he was really involved with that. Uh, and he also was involved at the same time, I believe, with helping Mission Impossible as far as uh, scoring and stuff like that. That really was one of the things he loved to do. And um, if you listen to the first two seasons of Next Generation, they sound more like the original series. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bob liked real descriptive music. Sure. When Rick Berman, uh, you know, uh, totally took over, the music was still good, but Rick wanted the music to be more like wallpaper. Right. Yeah. And that's what it was. We talked about that. We did an episode recently um, about the music of Star Trek with Lucas Kendall, and we talked a lot about how the music changed after Bob left, and obviously Berman had a very different musical aesthetic. Um, and, um, you know, obviously the magnificence of the uh, scores for the original series uh, and that wonderful La La Land record set that yeah. they did, which is a real gift. You know, it's interesting. I'm mean, just talking about Bob Justman and so many of the people in the Star Trek world that you know. I mean, I, I think we can never take for granted that we've been so lucky to be um, have the chance to to you know meet our you know and spend time with our idols and you know so often people are disappointed when they meet their uh, you know they say beware you know of what you wish for but you know we've all been 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 very lucky and particularly now so many people involved with the original Star Trek were were at the end you know Doug Grindstaff passed away recently John D F Black you know there are not a lot of people left you know who were there. And to have had the chances that you've had, and so many of the cast members, William Wyndham, who you were close with, Malachi. Um, <laughs> we had William Wyndham to the house. We, we were actually, it was for a, uh, a Star Trek New Voyages uh, thing. And in the script, uh, William Wyndham doesn't die in the, with the Doomsday Machine. He's catapulted back into the past, and Barbara Luna finds him. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, when he came to the house, I see a muddy Jeep. He's like lives, lived up in Oregon or something like that. And I see a muddy Jeep pull up and I said, I think that's him. And I go out there and he's got like these, you know, like boots for wearing in the woods. And he looks like a, uh, you know, like a uh, a lumberjack almost, you know. And I was just thrilled to meet him. It was the first time I'd met him. And uh, Dorothy had a crush from him from The Farmer's Daughter. The TV show, The Farmer's Daughter. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, my wife has, has a big crush on you from The Farmer's Daughter. And he goes, well, I'll take care of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. He was something else. And, and he was so funny. I mean, you know, uh, that uh, he was 
he said, that was his show. He says, that was my show. I stole it away from William Shatner, you know? He's so <laughs> memorable. And, and it's funny because, you know, they had originally wanted Robert Ryan for it, which I thought right. would have been amazing. Yeah. But boy, William Wyndham's great. William Wyndham, incredible. Oh, my God, he crushed it. He crushed and it. And I love the thing with the... The, uh, the, the, the 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 discs the, the tiles the, yeah the tape. yeah I mean he was doing Humphrey Bogart yeah. in uh, the K Mutiny uh, the yeah. K Mutiny yeah, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. another incredible yeah. movie oh my God well yeah. you were you know I started getting emotional along with you when you were talking about Bob Justman and and talking about you know realizing meeting the people that you respected and became sort of mentors. And I just wanted to say I feel that way about you. Oh. 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 <laughs> We just hugged. <laughs> so there. I love no, you. It's, 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 hey, listen. I mean, we talked about it before. There's a, there's a certain extended family thing that comes with this. There's uh, a continuum. There, across the years, across, uh, you know, distance, it's all connected. It's all threads that you go through life and you see kindred people and you're able to connect with them. And they're all sort of driven to this either place or feeling or time and it's all sort of part of uh, some some plan i don't know what it is i don't know i don't understand it I always but think it's there spock in city Ninja forever where he talks yeah. about the eddies and backwashes mm-hmm. of time mm-hmm. you know it's funny I, I reference that a lot you know i have to say that i feel like part of what this show need, it does and, and and is trying to do is is that you know right now so much in popular culture is of the moment you know, particularly with streaming and binging, it's like, oh, we watch this, then we forget about it, we move on right. to the next, we move on to the next. Disposable. Everything's very, very, very disposable. And I think, you know, we've all tried to do is honor those people that came before us who inspired us and keep them alive in our memories and our thoughts and pass it down, you know, so that these people are not forgotten. I'm always amazed that, you know, some of the young people watch this guy have no idea who Gene Roddenberry was, that, you that know. That makes me so and, sad. And, and uh, it's so important to sort of, you know, honor these names, which are like the Mount Rushmore for us, you know, Gene Roddenberry, Gene Kuhn, Bob Justman, you know, uh, and if we Matt can Jeffries. That oral history sort of being passed on to whoever may uh, pick it up, that's, that's what we want. Yeah, well, look, hey, Doug, it's always such a pleasure having you with us on the show. You have such great stories, and, and just, you know, your story is, is it has always fascinated me, and, you know, and, and it, you know, just starting at the, the trading post back in the day, you know, even going back to, you know, the World's Fair and Flushing oh, Meadows, I, I just, I, I always find you so fascinating, and your stories are so great, and, um, you know, you, 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 you almost in a way, and this is not an insult, are like the Forrest Gump of, uh, you know, <laughs> you've gone from Star Trek and, and working with Warren Beatty and then to be on Galactica, you know, to all these, these legendary franchises. I, sometimes I think I'm a, like dreaming, you know, I, maybe I'm bleeding you are, out Doug. somewhere. You're, you're dreaming. Wake up. <laughs> Wake up. <laughs> you need it back on set. But honestly, you know, I love coming here and talking about this with you guys, you know, I mean, uh, how many people can we just run off and blather and and go on a tear and talk and you know it's that that shared 
you know, uh, history thing that we all Gentlemen, have. Gentlemen, I hate to interrupt this mutual admiration <laughs> society, but... <laughs> well, we used to do this over drinks, but, you know, we've all heard each other's stories ad nauseum. So at least now we can <laughs> repeat them for people who haven't heard them as many times. Anyway, it, look, it's been an absolute pleasure and delight as always. And Thank I you want for to having me. Mine, our audience, you can follow Inglorious Trek Experts on Twitter and Instagram at Inglorious Trek, as well as on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Inglorious Trek, where you can continue the conversation by suggesting show topics and give us feedback on every episode. In addition, if you like what you hear, please, please rate us five stars at Apple Podcasts. We're actually doing really well with that, and I'd like to keep that up because that brings new people to the show, and that's the goal is just to you know bring uh, bring bring more and more listeners. I mean, the show's doing really well, and and I just uh, if there are people who could appreciate this, we want we want them to know we exist. You can hear new episodes of Inglorious Trexperts every Sunday wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you're a fan, unlike Darren of Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> <laughs> Don't miss our uh, all-new podcast, Disco Nights, with host Chase Masterson and her special guest who loves Discovery every week with uh, new episodes premiering every Thursday night. And finally, a uh, very special thanks to Bill, Natalie, and everyone here at Electric Surge Net- Network for uh, making the show possible. We couldn't do it without them. So until next week, on behalf of Doug Drexler, Darren Doctorman, myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.